from Paul's letter to the Colossians, God's Word, chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, now you may be seated. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, We pray your spirit reign amongst us, that it take charge of me as the preacher, that it would be your word, your truth, your life that I proclaim, not the reasons of man or the wisdom of man, but the purest of pure, your inspired word. And we pray, Heavenly Father, for ears to hear. Let us, Father, be given focus. Let us be rescued from distraction. Let us uh, come to you, Father, by the grace of your Spirit with an attention for your Word that wants it to be pressed into our hearts, that wants it to bear fruit in our lives, that wants it to secure and comfort us at the deepest of our soul. Father, make this hearing a work of praise to you. And make the preaching, Father, to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I want to start with just a simple question. Do you struggle with weak faith? Do you struggle with weak faith? Maybe your faith has doubts. Maybe your faith has confusion in it. You're not sure that you understand or that you can get your mind around adequately the fullness of the gospel. Maybe your faith is weak because of temptation. Perhaps the old life or old pleasures or things that we are not to do have wrapped themselves and enchanted your heart. Perhaps you have weakness because of your confidence that there are are just parts of, of trusting in the gospel that goes beyond what you feel capable of releasing. Perhaps you're just not able to take every word of scripture as God's word. Perhaps you have a weakness of faith because you are in a state of, of tiredness or in a place of of spiritual staleness. You, you, you look at your walk and it's, it's the same place. It's trudging along. It hasn't seen a mountaintop in how long. And you're exhausted. Or perhaps your faith is weak, being afflicted with distractedness, noble distractedness, the, the commands of, of taking care of your family or your job or, 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 or any other thing is, has so filled your time that you just have nothing left. 
and you come feeling like your soul shrivels up because it hasn't been able to feed on God. You come this morning recognizing your faith is not a flame. It's a smolder. We all struggle with weakness of faith. The slightest setback for me can easily cause me to reel and ask questions like, are you there? Do you care? Can I trust you in this? We hear stories of the believers from the past and of their faith, and we feel humbled by comparison. For example, in the second century, the the martyr Polycarp, known famously for always catching more than one carp, He, he was an old man in the second century in a young church. And the story we have of him is that he stood at the stake to be burned because he confessed Jesus as Lord. And as he stood at the stake, he was asked such a simple, tempting question, simply recant Simply say, Jesus is not your Lord, and the flames will go away. And in that moment, he famously answered, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my Savior and my King? His faith chose the flames. Where does such faith come from? Is such faith even possible for us average believers? Well, I believe today, by God's wonderful providence, we are given the comfort and the encouragement that we need as we struggle with weakness in our faith. We have been given a baptism and a word from Scripture that work together beautifully to strengthen us exactly where we are weak. First, our text. Paul calls us to become stable and steadfast in our faith, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, exactly the words that we in our weakness need to hear again and again. But the question is, how are we to become stable and steadfast? He is going to show us in this text that our stability comes through the gospel itself. But also the celebration of baptism calls us to remember our own baptism. The reason I I, I called out Polycarp in in this introduction is that he says these words, For 86 years I have served him and he has not done me wrong. Many uh, historians believe that that 86 years points back to the the baptism of Polycarp, which was either as a as an infant or as a as a very young child for 86 years as a as a quite a lifespan but he is likely in 80 in those 86 years recalling back his baptism as the beginning point where he knows God's faithfulness and that is a lesson for us as we uh subscribe to the Westminster uh, catechism or the Westminster confession of faith and its catechisms we're told In the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 167, to take these opportunities of a baptism to improve our own baptism. And how are we to do that? 
We are to remember what the sacrament of baptism is to tell us about the gospel. Improving our baptism means we are to grow in our confidence in the gospel, i.e. what Paul calls becoming stable and steadfast. These two come to the same place. And so, today I want to take the occasion of Adlon's baptism to strengthen all of our faith and to see the difference and to see that the difference between the great believers like Polycarp and ourselves are really not that different. We have access to the same strength that he claimed. Today, then, we are going to see how our confidence grows by seeing the gospel supplying us all that we need to be saved. In fact, we are going to look at this text and see the four ministries of the gospel that supply strength to our faith. And so if you have uh, your scripture in front of you, we are now going to work through it piece by piece to look at these four ministries of the gospel that supply strength to our faith. First, we are going to see that it finds us in our alienation. Second, we are going to see that it accomplishes our reconciliation. Third, we are going to see that it assures us of our salvation. And fourth, we're going to see that it preserves us by faith alone. Let us now look at that first one. It finds us in our alienation. And we look at verse 21 to see this. Last week in our series, which we've been calling Jesus is Enough, we saw the conclusion of this, this uh, beautiful soaring him of who Jesus really is, that he is, he is the creator and sovereign over all creation, and he is the redeemer and reconciler of the new creation by the power of his resurrection. We have seen in those last two weeks that Jesus is enough because Christ is the way, the only way of salvation. This week, Paul takes that, that truth and applies it directly to the church in Colossae, directly to the listeners and the, the readers of this letter, to know that what that Christ that we have just proclaimed is and does, he does and is for you. And that is why he transitions with the words, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, you he is now speaking to. The you is, is, is in history speaking to the Colossian church, but the you is true of all believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that you comes off the page and speaks to you and your believing heart. You who were alienated and hostile in mind. We see that that you applies uh, uh, to everyone. Everyone needs the gospel that Paul is about to preach. He goes in verse 23 to say that this gospel has gone through the whole world, has been preached to everyone in creation. The meaning of that is that this gospel is needed by everyone. There is not a soul, there is not a person, there is not a life, there is not a way that does not need the gospel. It needs to be preached to everyone. It is the one reconciler, the one mediator, the only way. And so when he says you, he is saying this is the only way that you can be saved. 
We see this confirmed in the very fact that we baptized Avalon this morning. I mean, babies are cute. And babies are innocent in the world's eyes. But the reason that we baptize babies is because we recognize from the scriptures that sin goes all the way to the very beginning. Everyone is under sin. Everyone is stained. This word hostile in mind, it's already in Adeline. If you don't believe that, wait until she can say the word no. It will come out vigorously and emphatically. We don't teach our children to sin. They just come out that way. And so the, the, the baptizing of a baby is a reminder that the affliction of sin goes all the way down. There is no escape. There is only one way, and that is salvation in Christ. Psalm 51, written by David himself, declares these words, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is saying there was never a moment, there was never a breath that I didn't have a sinful heart, a sinful desire, a hostile mind to the ways of God. I rebelled at my first possible chance because I was bent to rebel. That is the deepest affliction, the deepest malignancy. It is, it is the congenital disease that parents give to their children, sin before their first breath. And that is what Scripture teaches us. We are in alienation. We are lost, hopelessly lost. Paul uses three words. He says, we are alienated, we are hostile in mind, and we are evildoers. He doesn't say some of you. He speaks to all of us under this harsh reality. A mind, he says, your mind is hostile And it is from the hostility of the mind that we are born with that all of our alienation and all of our evil doing comes. Because a mind set on sin, a mind set on independence, is hostile to God. It is far from Him. It desires to be away from Him, to have the authority that He claims for ourselves. Paul says in Romans 8, 7 this very very clearly. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We are all like the prodigal son in the famous parable. The first chance that we get, we say, I just I want all your stuff and I want you out of my life. And we go to the far country and we are prodigious in our sin. We are rebellious. We party. We live it up. We have all of the experiences that are denied to us. We've all gone to the far country, but the far country is lost. Once you're in the far country, you can't go back. He spent all of his means. He was impoverished, and he ends up in the pig pen, desperate to eat the slop that was fed to the pigs. That is where his rebellion went. It took him to a lost place, and it took him to a place he could not return from. He was estranged from his father, and he was filthy in his sin. 
the good news is that Christ seeks us and Christ finds us. Verse 23 says, the gospel that you heard, these people who are alienated, hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, who have chosen the far country, who have rebelled from God, the gospel comes to them, the gospel comes to us because you heard that there is salvation, there is reconciliation. You have been reconciled by God's Son. That alienation that you are in, that you cannot get out of, God in his grace sends the message of the gospel. And it finds you. And the only participation you have in it is that you heard. That's the most passive thing in the world. You let it into your ears. You heard it. Because it has done everything else. It found you. It called you. It claimed you. And you were there just to hear. And thank God because there was nothing else you could do. You were alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds. The word has come to us. It finds us in our alienation. Yet, we shift. We have a a tendency to shift from this gospel that has found us in our alienation. How do we shift? Temptations? Things you wish you could still do, things you want to do. We backslide. We go back to those things that we know we should not do. And maybe if you haven't backslidden, you all fight with a nostalgic heart for the thing that is forbidden. I found myself a a week ago uh, watching beer commercials. You can't not watch a beer commercial if you have the TV on. And I I found myself in in my unchastened mind saying, I wish I could just have one beer commercial moment. That looks so great, right? With the party that never ends and, and the happiness and the frolicking. Man, pop me into the beer commercial just, just, just for a weekend. There is nostalgia for sin. Marketing wants to make the, the, the pleasures that are forbidden beautiful. And so like the prodigal son, we think about the far country, we think about the parties, we think about the indulgences, we think about the freedoms that we celebrated and we thought it was so great. But what we need to remember and what our baptism helps us remember when those temptations and the backslidings and the nostalgia for sin comes over us, is baptism reminds us of our need for the gospel. And you want to know how? Well, as the Westminster Larger Catechism question 167 says, it humbles us for our sinful defilement. What it means by that is, in baptism, we remember this most important truth. We need cleaned. We need to be cleaned because we are dirty in our sin. Baptism takes our mind from the the nostalgia of sin and recenters us back into the pig pen of sin. The reason you needed baptism is because you had made yourself filthy 
in sin and rebellion. It is disgusting what your sin is. And baptism reminds us your sin only gave you one thing, stench and a desperate need for a bath. And a bath that no water could clean because this filth is in your soul. That is what baptism reminds us of. And as we come to to the baptism today, we need to remember we needed cleaned. Have you come to that place where you recognize you need cleaned? That the pig pen is a pig pen. Then remember your baptism. Because number two, it accomplishes our reconciliation. The gospel accomplishes our reconciliation. Sin doesn't just end in the pig pen. It ends in death and judgment. As Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. That's all that we can hope for in rebellion to the author of life. Is sin and judgment. But the good news of the gospel is that Christ comes to die in our place. We recognize the verdict that we are hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. But then verse 22 says this. He has now reconciled you by his body in the flesh by death. You were reconciled. That is the message of the gospel. You who were hostile in mind are now reconciled, made peace with, brought home, reconciled, past tense. Everything that you needed was entirely by him and entirely for us. Reconciliation means that your salvation is accomplished entirely by Christ. You were, but now. Your reality is completely transformed because of what he has done for you. Yet we do shift. We shift from this good news. How how do we shift from, from the good news that we are reconciled? We avoid the cross. We avoid the cross. The message of the cross is so wounding to our self-image. We live in a world filled with the message, I'm good. And the cross says, you're sinful. The world raises you up to say, I can. And the cross says, you can't. But Christ did. He has. And so you see the gospel fundamentally is a war against your pride You have to receive it all. You have to accept it all that it was done for you because you could do none of it yourself. And your self-image wants to say, no, I can. No, I don't need that. 
But the reality of the gospel is, is put beautifully by Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan preacher. He says, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. The only thing that we contribute is the sin that made it necessary. Again, baptism is a beautiful illustration of this, especially a baptism of a baby. Because for all of the cuteness of a baby, there is also this fundamental truth. The baby is utterly helpless, can't do anything. And the infant is a picture of what we can do to save ourselves. We are helpless and hopeless. We can do nothing. We depend on grace for everything. And so... We help ourselves uh, develop in this, in this strength, this ministry of the gospel by remembering our own baptism, by remembering the power of the gospel. The gospel, the, the, the message of baptism makes the message of the cross central. As we are told in, in the uh, 167th question again, it draws us strength from the death and resurrection of Christ into whom we are baptized from the mortifying of sin and the quickening of grace. You see, what what we remember when we look at our baptism is that the water is an image of judgment. You see in Scripture, the waters of Noah's flood was the way that God judged all the wickedness. The waters of the Red Sea was the way that God brought down Pharaoh and the armies of Egypt in final judgment. Water has a long association with God's judgment. When we look at the water of baptism, we are admitting we deserve to be wiped out in the flood for our individual hostile mind and evil deeds. But the gospel says an amazing thing. You go under the waters of baptism, which is grace and peace, Because Christ went under the judgment. Christ went under the judgment. Baptism reminds us that Christ went under our judgment to bring us under God's grace. Again, as Paul tells us in Romans, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. The message that we are communicating in baptism is that the death that should have been ours was the death that he took. He was baptized into our death so that we could be baptized into his life. That is the message that we celebrate, that is demonstrated. The gospel ministers to us because it accomplishes our reconciliation. But also third, let us recognize that it assures us of our salvation. What does the rest of verse 22 say? It says, in order to. In order to is a a very important phrase. It's a word of purpose. It says that Jesus died in the flesh 
for a purpose. There was a reason to his death. There was a a purpose behind it. He died purposefully. And we need to note well that whatever God sets out as his purpose, he accomplishes. Go to Isaiah chapter 55 and read these words. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. That is the truth of God's word. And who is Jesus? Jesus is God's word in the flesh. And so if it is true of God's written word that it accomplishes that, which for, that for which it was purposed, most certainly does Christ, the living word, accomplish exactly what God has purposed for him. And so we need to heed these words. God's purpose in laying his life down in Jesus in death for our reconciliation is this. That we might be holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is the purpose for which Christ died. I love how it's rendered in the NIV. It says that we would be free from accusation or even the new living, which says that we will be without a single fault. That is what Christ was purposed, and that is what Christ has accomplished, that by his reconciliation, you who were alienated and hostile in mind are now standing before God without blemish, without accusation, holy, and in his blessing. That is what he purposed. And because that is what he purposed, that is what he accomplishes. You see, the gospel is just like the prodigal. You went from the pig pen to being hugged, robed in the father's garments and brought in to the banquet of joy. All of that has been accomplished in the reconciliation of Christ. The gospel takes us all the way home from pig pen to royal garb. But we shift. We shift. I have, I have tried to preach the fullness of what the gospel accomplishes. I've, I've, I've anchored it in scriptures, and yet in our mind there is a moment of doubt We question whether sometimes we are truly forgiven. We wake up in the middle of the night with the accuser in our ears saying, I remember what you did. And we begin to wonder, can I be forgiven? Is the gospel really for a pig pen, slothful person like me? And we doubt. We come away from these attacks and we lack assurance. 
We can't believe that the gospel that has been preached can truly be for me because I know my sins. I know my depravities and defilements. And they loom large in my conscience and in my past. And they seem to even color my future. And so we shift from the assurance of the gospel. And that is why now at such a time we are called to remember our baptism. Because in our baptism, we experience a tangible assurance of the gospel. As again, question 167 says, that it is there to help us grow up to the assurance of pardon of sin and of all other blessings sealed to us in that sacrament. How? How does remembering our baptism help us fight for assurance? Because baptism is a seal of the gospel. That is such an important word. Baptism is a seal of the gospel. Do you, do you know what the word seal means? When the king in an ancient country or a foreign land would send an official letter, he had a ring with a seal that he would press into wet wax that would dry and hold that seal. And it established that when that letter was written, it was official, it was backed by all the royalty of that king. What we are told is that baptism is a seal from God in heaven that the gospel that I have provided in Christ will accomplish its purpose not just for others, but for you, specifically you, are sealed under the promise of the gospel. You see, what what we have when we have baptism is we have the washing of water is a royal seal of what Christ does to our soul. As the water washes the body, we are sealed with the promise that Christ washes the soul. I've shared before my my personal testimony. I I came to faith in a, a, a strange circumstance. I was just reading the Bible wanting to actually make a decision against the gospel. But it, was, it just kept working on me. The, the person of Jesus kept impressing me of his truth and of my need to make terms with him. And so I found myself in a shower one morning, not planning at all, but just began to pray. God, forgive me. I, I have sinned. I have done sexual sins. I have done all sorts of defiling things. I have done wrong by your holy word. I'm a sinner. Forgive me. Christ, be the Lord of my life. And it was beautiful that Christ called me in a shower because as I was being forgiven, I was being cleaned. And I have fixed to my experience of conversion that I have been washed, that I came out clean in Christ. And that that message is so powerful and so important that we are called to remember our baptism because you too have been washed. You are clean. 
You are to remember your baptism, to remember these words. You have been washed by Christ. Though you were scarlet, you are now white as snow. And that message, taken against your doubts, taken against the question of whether you yourself can be saved, stands to answer. As we are told in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, because of this, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There is no defilement that can stick to you that Christ's baptism into your death doesn't wash and purge and purify you. You stand by God's word and Christ's death holy and blameless and without accusation in front of him. You have been sealed And let the the royal decree of your baptism that you have been washed fight your doubts. But fourth, it also preserves us by faith alone. Let us now look again at Colossians chapter 1 verse 23, which says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Paul introduces a a conditional statement with the word if. Some people get worried that that may mean that that, uh, someone can lose their salvation, but the sense that Paul has for this if is not to, to, to threaten us that our salvation could be lost, but to remind us that the salvation that we need is only in faith. So don't look elsewhere. Hold fast to faith alone. And so we see that that the gospel ministers to us because it preserves us by faith alone. Paul is making clear in this verse that faith alone in Christ alone is all that we need to be saved. And he is also reminding us that the faith alone that saves is the faith alone that demonstrates longevity. If you truly believe in Jesus, you will continue to believe in Jesus. It's like if you were truly married to your wife, you will continue to be married to your wife. The two are similar. And so if a faith does not continue, it brings strong questions about whether it was there in the first place. So I return to this question about weak faith. We are preserved by faith alone. Okay, okay, faith alone. Okay, I have to believe, but, but I'm weak. My faith is weak. I, I falter. I, I, I worry. I, I backslide. I mean, how can I know I have enough faith? How can I know my faith is big enough, my faith is strong enough, that my faith is going to persevere? This is the good news. Paul doesn't say you need big faith. He says you just need faith. All you need is faith. The Puritan Richard Sibbs, I I believe, ministers to us when we have a question of whether we believe hard enough or big enough or strong enough. Richard Sibbs says, in the covenant of grace, 
God requires the truth of grace, not a certain amount. A spark of fire is fire, just as much as the whole element is. All do not have strong faith, but all have precious faith, by which they take hold of and put on the perfect righteousness of Christ. A weak hand may receive an expensive jewel. In the covenant of grace, he requires no more than he gives. He gives what he requires, and he accepts what he gives. In the covenant of grace, he requires no more than he gives, but gives what he requires and accepts what he gives. If the Father has given you any faith, then hold on to that faith alone. Because if that's what he has given you, that is what he'll require from you. And nothing else. And this is why remembering our baptism again helps us. Because our baptism points us again and again back to faith alone. How does it do that? Because baptism is a sign of the gospel. You recognize the difference between a sign and a thing. A sign points to the thing. It is not the thing. So imagine going to Disney World and taking your picture in front of the sign that says, Next Left Disney World, and going home and saying, We went to Disney World. No. That would be classically mistaking the sign for the thing. And this is important. We do not mistake baptism as the thing. It is the sign. Baptism does not save. It points to what does save, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is to remind us that we have all that we need just by believing the gospel. It tells us in baptism, it's done. He is faithful. You were dirty, but now you are washed. Now, hear this. Just believe it. Just believe. I believe this takes us back to Polycarp. I don't think the story of his faith is that he was a, a titan in the faith different than any one of us could be. I think the secret to his confession at the flame was that Polycarp was made steadfast by years of experiencing God's faithfulness in the gospel. Eighty-six years he has never done me wrong and those 86 years of having never been done wrong by his Lord was exactly the strength that he needed to stand and confess. And so what we are called to is nothing more than Polycarp was called to, was to trust in him who is faithful, to be confident that he who called you and purchased you by his blood will seal you, will confirm you, and will deliver you all the way to the end. Believe in that, and you will have all that you need. Remember your baptism. 
Christ has done it all. Trust in him. So as we see these four ministries of the gospel that are confirmed to us through our baptism, we see that it finds us in our alienation, that it accomplishes our reconciliation, that it assures us of our salvation, that it preserves us by faith alone. Let me leave you with a personal question. Where do you most need to improve your baptism today? Is it in temptation? Do you need to remember that you were washed? Is it in repentance? Do you need to realize that it was Christ who had to die in your place? Is it in assurance? Do you struggle with believing that you truly are clean? Is it in perseverance? Do you need to be reminded that any faith but just faith is enough to bring the gospel into your life? Do not push those questions away. Work on these questions. Fight your weakness with the power of the gospel. And all of us, let us put our faith in these words You who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Amen.